Good morning. As Mike said, our scripture today is Matthew 2, 1 through 12, and it's on page 681 in the Blue Bibles. After Jesus was born in Bethlehem in Judea, during the time of King Herod, Magi from the east came to Jerusalem and asked, Where is the one who's been born King of the Jews? We saw a star in the east, and we have come to worship him. When King Herod heard this, he was disturbed, and all Jerusalem with him. When he had called together all the people's chief priests and teachers of the law, he asked them where the Christ was to be born. In Bethlehem in Judea, they replied, for this is what the prophet has written. But you, Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah. For out of you will come a ruler who will be the shepherd of my people, Israel. Then Herod called the Magi secretly and found out from them the exact time the star had appeared. He sent them to Bethlehem and said, Go and make a careful search for the child. As soon as you find him, report to me, so that I too may go and worship him. And they had heard the king. They went on their way, and the star they had seen in the east went ahead of them until it stopped over the place where the child was. When they saw the star, they were overjoyed. On coming to the house, they saw the child with his mother Mary, and they bowed down and worshipped him. Then they opened their treasures and presented him with gifts of gold and incense and of myrrh. And having been warned in a dream not to go back to Herod, they returned to their country by another route. This is the word of the Lord. Well, I am really excited to get to kick off this new sermon series that we're calling The Mission of the Incarnation. And I want to I kick it off by introducing you to the worship season that surrounds and inspires the mission of the incarnation. It's called Epiphany. Epiphany is a liturgical season that follows Christmas, and it takes us all the way to Lent. And, uh, and to, tomorrow is a, the day of Epiphany. We're celebrating Epiphany Sunday. Some call it Three Kings Day. You can read a lot more about the history and the meaning of Epiphany in your bulletin, but let me give you a couple cheat sheet notes for this morning, okay? Here they are. The word epiphany means appearance, and in Christian worship, it refers to the appearance of Jesus Christ, of God in Jesus Christ, not just to the Jews, but to the whole world. So that's why epiphany has this great missional flair. Um, You could say it like this, epiphany turns our attention from the manger of Jesus to his mission, from the manger to the mission. Or another way, from the mystery of the incarnation, which we've been celebrating, to the mission of the incarnation. And remember, the reason Christians follow a church calendar is because we want God's story to shape our lives in every possible, tangible way, right down to the way we tell time. So just like Advent helps us long for the coming of God and Jesus... And Christmas helps us celebrate that coming. Epiphany, follow this, then shapes what we do with his coming. Did you get that? Advent, Christmas, Epiphany. Coming, joy, what we do with his coming. The season of Epiphany shapes us into missional people because it teaches us about the missional heart of God. Um, But here's the thing. I think that the church, we, you and I, can be a little bit awkward. Now, maybe it's just overzealous, okay, in how we do mission work. Am I dancing alone here? 
to, to make that statement. Um, so just to prove my point, I brought a couple pieces of evidence this morning. You can find them on your screen. Let me say in advance, I know church signs are easy targets, but nevertheless, think about this. Someone was obviously convinced that what you see would, I guess, invite someone to Christianity. Exhibit A, you can see it. Don't let your worries kill you. Let the church help. So you're depressed, you're driving down the street, you see this church sign. Is that missional? I don't know. It's a, it's a, yeah, it's a mission for something, right? Um, or here's exhibit B. How about this message of life and hope? Every day above ground is a good one. So sort of like a little bit maybe more of a realist congregation, you know? Here's my favorite, though. Bring your sin to the altar and drop it like it's hot. I just, I'd like to make further comments on that, but I won't. Uh, this is a bit of a pop culture reference. One other quick story I just can't not tell you today that my friend told me years ago. Um, he, <laughs> when he was a kid, he said, a tr- and he's from Texas, so I don't know if that has something to do with it too, but he said a traveling evangelist came to his church to speak to all of the kids. And, um, and he was talking about, the evangelist was talking about how Jesus was a fisher of men. So the whole time uh, he was giving his talk to the, to the kids, maybe it was like a vacation Bible school or something, he had brought with him like a prop, like a big fishing pole, line, bait on the end of it. And he said, my friend said, the whole time this guy would just, Jesus was a fisher of men. And he would cast it out into the kids, reel it in. Cast it out into the kids. You know, Jesus loves you. Just, re- just back and forth, you know, 5, 10, 15, 20 minutes. When he had finished and he was sort of given the invitation to the kids, he basically said, if you want to make a decision to follow Christ today, I want you to grab the line as I cast it and I'm going to reel you in. Well, my friend said he was so bummed because he had already decided to follow Christ, but he just really wanted to be caught by the fishermen. And then reeled in with all of his other friends who were, you know, grabbing the line and getting to, to make, the, make their way forward. Uh, and he said he, he couldn't stand it anymore. And he, yes, he feels guilty to this day, but he eventually had to go forward again because he wanted to grab a hold of the line and go stand with his friends, get caught, you know. So he did that. Honestly, I can't promise you uh, that these methods didn't, you know, interest someone in, in Christianity. And I, so I'm not picking on anybody. I'm just pointing out the fact that mission work, especially in our day and age, is hard to do. And maybe, maybe I should say it's hard to do well. It's, it's hard to know how to do it. And so here's where Matthew's story of the three kings, Matthew's story of the wise men, can be of great help to us today. Not because it's going to give us a strict set of guaranteed conversion instructions, but because in it, we get to see the way our God does mission. And the crazy thing is, the way God does mission mission is unsettling. It's unique. Of course, it's the way he does everything else. It's upside down. It's counterintuitive. It's seemingly backwards. Uh, in a word, I would describe it this way, and this word will sort of drive the talk. God does mission in a mysterious, mysterious, mysterious way. So here's, here's the take-home point. Here's what I want you to walk away with today for the one or two of you who are taking notes, okay? For Mike, the season of epiphany 
teaches us that God's appearance, which is what epiphany means, is mysterious in three ways. Three ways. It's mysteriously inclusive, mysteriously gracious, and mysteriously personal. I'll say it again. The season of Epiphany teaches us that God's appearance is mysterious in three very instructive ways for us. It's inclusive, it's gracious, and it's personal. So let's dig in. First, Epiphany teaches us that God's appearance is inclusive. Look at verse 1 of chapter 2 that E.P. just read. Matthew writes this. After Jesus was born in Bethlehem in Judea, during the time of King Herod, Magi from the east came to Jerusalem and asked, Where is the one who has been born King of the Jews? We saw his star when it rose and have come to worship him. Now the opening words of this gospel story would have caused Matthew's readers and really should cause us to do a double take. Because Matthew's uh, Jewish audience would have understood the story of the Old Testament. It was their story. They they were one of the main characters. They knew that God had been promising to rescue them from political oppression and evil for centuries through the coming of Jesus or the coming of the Messiah. And yet, after their long time of wait, after the long Advent wait, Christmas comes, the Messiah is born, and among the first people to greet him, according to this story, are not Jews. What is up with that? These Eastern magic dudes from a whole different part of the world, a whole different worldview. This is a major, major plot twist. It's almost as striking. It's almost as striking as when you read chapter one, one page over in Matthew's gospel, and we find out together with his audience that in Jesus' family tree are women like Rahab and Tamar and Ruth the Moabitess. Remember? That's just sort of that striking. Matthew is a great storyteller. So here's the thing. As one scholar said, Matthew is basically giving us his whole gospel story in this one episode of the three wise men. And what is that story? It's this. Jesus came not just for a select group of people, but for the whole world. So Matthew gives us a group of Gentile Easterners coming to greet the Jewish Messiah. It's amazing. It's inclusive. Now let me quickly tell you why it's so shocking that God appeared to these guys first. Four kind of short ways. Number one, they were outsiders geographically and culturally, not only from the East, but Gentiles. Number two, they were outsiders politically. Most scholars think their allegiance would have been with the king of Persia. Number three, they were outsiders religiously. They don't even come from a Hebraic worldview. They come from an Eastern mindset, which would have included all kinds of different kinds of spirituality, but most likely divination, you know, magic, astrology. So these guys are way outside of the norm. By the way, that's why we've come to call these three wise men magi. Have you ever wondered that? The word magi comes from magician, and most scholars believe these guys were you know, stargazers, uh, and not just astronomers, but actually astrologers. Astrologer. So there's some prediction involved, like maybe they would try to predict who was going to be king by looking at the stars. So these are the, these are the guys that 
Matthew has the Messiah appear to first. Now, we heard about this in our call to worship. Tim and Angela led it this morning from Isaiah 60. Remember, arise, shine, for your light has come, and the glory of the Lord rises upon you. Nations will come to your light, and kings to the brightness of your dawn. God came not for a select group of people, but for the whole world. And that twist is happening in the plot of the Bible story in this chapter. Okay, so it's mysteriously inclusive mission. How do we apply this to our lives? I wonder, I just wonder if the take-home point for us about God's inclusivity here is the same as it would have been for Matthew's Jewish audience. Because let, let's be honest, it's not, it's not really hard to en- envision God loving and ministering to people who are hurting and sinful and have done maybe great evil. I think, maybe it's just today's world, I think we actually struggle, at least I do, more to envision God saving people and people groups of whom we are simply unfamiliar or afraid or even against. Are you tracking with me? I recently visited uh, a Coptic Orthodox church, and this is a group of Christians made up of mostly um, Egyptian and Middle Eastern people who now live in the United States. Um, I am simultaneously both uh, ashamed and also really happy, I guess, to admit to you that during that service, God exposed in my heart during that hour and a half Uh, an absolutely sinfully narrow view of his global work to redeem the whole world to himself uh, from every tribe, tongue, and nation. Worshiping with those brothers and sisters was a grand and hopeful experience for me to look around the room and see to be the only white guy in the room. Um, Most of the service was in Arabic. Now, when Today, post 9-11, when we think of Arabic, let's be honest, uh, that carries some weight for us Orlandoans. You know what I mean? Um, It was powerful to hear God's word in Arabic, powerful to hear the Lord's prayer in Arabic, to hear these people chanting and singing and praising Jesus this way. Halfway through the service, um, I see the priest motion to someone in the back, and they literally stop the liturgy. They send me an interpreter, and she sits beside me the rest of the service so that I could participate in worship. Um, That is the missional, inclusive heart of God to the one white guy in the room. Man, it felt so good. It just rocked my world. This is what the season of Epiphany is all about. So in the story of the wise men, we learn first this missional principle. God appears to people we would never expect. People who are vastly different from us. And this is the whole point of the gospel as good news for everyone. The season of Epiphany teaches that God's appearance is mysterious in how inclusive it is. Here's the second point. Epiphany teaches us that God's appearance is mysterious in how gracious it is. And by this I mean God's appearance isn't hard to find. It's not you come to me, it's I'll come to you. I've I've put some words on the screen so you can follow along with me, but 
in a moment of great, great darkness one night on the heels of, of an abortion, uh, briefly sobered up and now just kind of sad and alone, one of my favorite authors, Anne Lamott, describes her own story of God's gracious appearance. It's a wonderful example of how mysterious, how foreign, really how subjective, how miraculous, and how kind God is to us. Anne writes these words. I had a cigarette and turned off the light. After a while, as I lay there, I became aware of someone with me, hunkered down in the corner. And I just assumed it was my father, whose presence I had felt over the years when I was frightened and alone. The feeling was so strong that I actually turned off the light for a moment to make sure no one was there. Of course, there wasn't. But after a while, in the dark again, I knew beyond any doubt it was Jesus. I felt him as surely as I feel my dog lying nearby as I write this. And I was appalled, she says. I thought about what everyone would think of me if I became a Christian, and it seemed an utterly impossible thing that simply could not be allowed to happen. I turned to the wall and said out loud, I would rather die. I felt him just sitting there on his haunches in the corner of my sleeping loft, watching me with patience and love. And I squinched my eyes shut, but that didn't help because that's not what I was seeing him with. If you're as cynical as me, when you hear Anne's story in those words, doubt and distrust, uh, realism and objectivity fill your mind and heart, and you say to yourself, no, that is not how God operates. And sadly, brother or sister, I think that you and I, because I'm right there with you, would have missed the star that the wise men saw. Do you see my point? Look at verse 2 of Matthew chapter 2. When the wise men came to Jerusalem to look for a king, they asked, where is the one who's been born king of the Jews? We saw his star when it rose and have come to worship him. Now jump down to verses 9 and 10. Notice what leads these men to God. After they had heard the king, that's Herod, they went on their way and the star they had seen when it rose went ahead of them until it stopped over the place where the child was. When they saw the star, they were overjoyed. Now, as we've all, I've already mentioned this, but remember the Magi were astrologers and astronomers, right? They studied the stars. And scholars don't know if, if, um, if they were searching the heavens like specifically for the Jewish Messiah, like they had been reading in uh, the, the, the books of the Old Testament and you know, been looking for the prophecy or something. Maybe it was just an intellectual inquiry for them. Or maybe they stumbled upon the star and were driven by questions of faith and spirituality. You know, who knows? We do know this, though. God's grace, in a way these men could understand, reached out to them in the form of a star. And I want to suggest to you that as unsettling as it is for us to consider the vastly different people to whom God appears, it might be even more settling for us to consider the different ways he appears to them. 
especially as modern, Western, scientific, precise, certain, evangelical American Christians. And this is the missional application for us here. Just as God appeared to a group of astrologers by means of a star, by means they could readily understand and think about it, even by means of their pagan religion, so God still appears to people in ways that are both gracious and mysterious. So we would do well, people of God, to tread lightly and humbly and lovingly when considering how God appears to people he wants to call to himself, especially in different cultures like ours. Epiphany teaches us that God's appearance is not only mysteriously inclusive, it's also gracious. In the days that followed, um, Anne Lamott's experience of seeing Jesus hunker down in the corner, uh, watching her during her dark night of the soul, she says she felt Jesus uh, following her around everywhere she went. Listen to this. One week later, Anne writes, when I went back to church, I was so hungover that I couldn't stand up for the songs. And this time I stayed for the sermon, which I just thought was so ridiculous. <laughs> like someone trying to convince me of the existence of extraterrestrials. But the last song was so deep and raw and pure that I could not escape. I began to cry and left before the benediction. And I raced home and I felt Jesus running at my heels. And I walked down the dock past dozens of potted flowers under a sky as blue as one of God's own dreams. And I opened the door to my houseboat and I stood there a minute. And then I hung my head and I said, expletive, I quit. I took a long, deep breath and said out loud, all right, you can come in. So this was my beautiful moment of conversion. Beloved of God, the season of Epiphany teaches us this second missional principle. God appears to humanity in mysteriously gracious ways when he wants to call us to himself. He led astrologers by means of a star. All right? So God's appearing is mysteriously inclusive and mysteriously gracious. And here's the final point. Epiphany teaches us God's appearance is mysteriously personal. That's to say, God appears not in a place, but in the person of Jesus. Christianity is fundamentally about the person of Jesus Christ. Our mission, therefore, is to take people to him. Nothing more and nothing less. The star led the wise men to Jesus. Look quickly at the end of the Magi's journey, verses 11 and 12. Verses 11 and 12. On coming to the house, they saw the child with his mother Mary, and they bowed down and worshipped him. Then they opened their treasures and presented him with gifts of gold, frankincense, and myrrh. And having been warned in a dream not to go back to Herod, they turned to their country by another route. Now you say, okay, wait, Josh, wait, wait, wait. You skipped some verses in the story. Because um, at, at first the Magi did go to Herod's palace, right? Do you remember when E.P. read that part? And to that I say, you are exactly right. Fantastic storytelling once again on St. Matthew's part. Follow me here. 
the wise men came to Jerusalem seeking a king, right? Seeking a king. So where did they go when they got to Jerusalem? To a palace. Kings live in palaces. And guess what? There was a king there, just not the right king, not the king. Do you see that? You see, the end of the journey for the wise men is not the pagan political power of Herod, nor is it even the Jewish temple. The end of their journey is completely counterintuitive. When you pause to think about it, it's mysterious. Imagine this, okay? The end of a many months long, probably perilous hike through the desert, through forest, by water, over mountains, leads to the house of a poor family living in some God-forsaken part of Bethlehem where a previously unwed mother is feeding her bastard son, the Son of God, the person of Jesus Christ. This, this is the king that we've been searching for. It wasn't a few miles back at Herod's palace. People of God, our temptation in mission is often to want to take people to Herod's palace, not to Jesus. And Herod's palace comes in many forms, but I think some of its most dangerous forms are the peripheral, the the fringy cultural expressions of of Jesus, of Christianity. That's That's where we get easily sidetracked. That's where I get sidetracked. For example... It's easier to invite people um, to Herod's palace in the form of supporting Duck Dynasty or eating at Chick-fil-A or shopping at Hobby Lobby. You know what I'm saying? Um, For those of you who have been reading about Christians in the news this past year, take them to Herod's palace. You know, get them on board with our social, political, uh, uh, cultural views. Because it's easier to invite people to cultural expressions of Jesus than to Jesus himself. Herod's palace is beautiful. It's easy to get to. And it comes in many, many forms. Just to clarify, I'm not picking on anybody, by the way. Mindy and I spend way too much money at Hobby Lobby. Chick-fil-A is our road trip food of choice. And we probably would watch Duck Dynasty, but we uh, are too busy watching Honey Boo Boo. So... But do you see my point? Do you see my point? Our mission is to bring people face to face with Jesus. Not ideas about him, not quick answers to hard questions, not political power or ideology, not the wealth that he may bring, nor the status that he may afford us, not cultural clubs where he's celebrated, not even correct behaviors that we think, or I should say we assume, Jesus would endorse. Our mission is to bring people face to face with Jesus himself. Put another way, the mission of the incarnation is to bring people face to face with the mystery of God's appearance, his epiphany, God in the flesh, Jesus Christ. I close with this. Uh, This coming face to face with Jesus is what's so special about worship every Sunday morning. You and I, 
through singing and praying, reading and listening to Scripture, and most especially, most especially through the body and blood of Jesus Christ in the Eucharist, have the opportunity to come face to face, not with an idea, not with a feeling, not even with a belief, but with a person, with a person. This is actually exactly how, for example, our church fathers talked about the Eucharist. In the bread and wine of communion, the church, they said, in a mysterious way, yes, a mysterious way, yes, by faith, we experience the real presence of Jesus Christ. Christians have certainly disagreed on what that means and how that happens, but no one in the history of Christianity in orthodoxy has disagreed with the fact that Jesus is mysteriously present here in worship, especially in the, in the bread and wine. Christianity is about coming face-to-face with God and about bringing people face-to-face with God. And Christian worship is the primary way this happens. You'd never think that, right? On a Sunday morning in Glen Ridge Middle School, we get to come face-to-face with God. So let's ask God together during this whole season of Epiphany, during this sermon series on the mission of the Incarnation, to let its mysterious inclusiveness and grace and personal nature forever change the way that you and I do mission together. Let's pray. Oh God, by the leading of a star, you manifested your only Son to the peoples of the earth. Lead us who know you now by faith to your presence where we may see your glory face to face through Jesus Christ our Lord who lives and reigns with you and the Holy Spirit, one God, now and forever. Amen.